goodness. Y'all better watch out. Rachel's going to start praying one of these days. Thank you, man. Thank you for this time tonight where we get to just honor our Savior and our Lord and oh, just worship. Respond to Him regardless of what's going on in our lives right now and bask in the presence of the one who loves us more than anyone else on the face of the planet. What a joy it is to be here. Okay, so uh, everybody in this room who's seen Shrek 2, yeah, okay, so at the very where, you know, it's kind of turned out a little bit differently than it was thought it was going to turn out. But at the end, there's still this moment where it's supposed to be this exciting time, but it's a little bit more somber. It turned out different, but it didn't turn out bad, did it? No, it didn't turn out bad. And so does anybody remember what Puss in Boots said? Yes. All right, you got Puss in Boots at the end. He walks up and he gets on the screen and he says, Isn't he supposed to be having a fiesta? You don't remember that? And then it goes right on into Little Lavita Loca, and it gets all crazy and everything. Everybody's singing and dancing. This right here captures what we're talking about tonight. It captures Jesus. It captures the life of the Christ follower who we are accustomed to laying our lives down. We are accustomed to sacrificing it all. We are accustomed to doing hard things for people who do hard things. We are accustomed to the joy of the Lord powering us throughout. Are we accustomed to having a fiesta at the same time? I don't know who we are. But tonight, this is what we get to talk about. We're in Matthew chapter 9 tonight, and we're starting a new series. And this is a new series, Criticizing Jesus. Now, it's a little bit confusing, though, because the message we you read there is, are we going to be criticizing Jesus? Heavens, no. We're not going to be criticizing our Savior and Lord, no. But Jesus was the recipient of a lot of criticism, wasn't he? As his being the recipient of criticism, we learn a lot from this. We learn a lot from what's going on in his life, and each criticism of Jesus gives us a unique perspective of his life and his ministry. I mean, the first thing it does is it, it kind of shows us what Jesus' colleagues, if you will, the, the, those that are, that are doing something similar to what Jesus was doing at the time, preaching, teaching, healing, it, it helps us see what they thought of Jesus. And it also helps us to see how Jesus responds in the face of this criticism. You see, these colleagues, they either view Jesus uh, in fear, they were afraid of the consequences of Jesus' teachings, how they were going to impact the religious leaders negatively. Or it made them just really angry at Jesus, didn't it? Made them incredibly angry over his teachings. But as we see their criticisms and how Jesus responded to the criticisms, when all is said and done, when we finish our evening tonight, here's what it all culminates into. And if you get nothing else, this is what it comes down to. Life with Christ is a life of joy. Life with Christ is a life of joy. Now, I know some of you are looking at this going, man, you know, I'd like for joy to feel a little bit better than it feels. You know, it doesn't mean life with Christ means that everything is all, all um, just happy and, you know, full of banana pudding and uh, Rocky Road ice cream and all that kind of stuff. That's not what it means. But joy Life with Christ is a life 
of joy. So let's go ahead and jump on in there. Matthew chapter 9. Whatever way you access the Word of God, go ahead and get there. Matthew chapter 9. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus faces criticism from a very unlikely group of people. Anybody remember John the Baptist? Yeah, the guy who was preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for Jesus to show up on this earth. John's disciples were the ones who were criticizing Jesus and his disciples. And what we're going to find is, if we're not careful, we can be just like John's disciples. We gotta watch ourselves, right? We gotta watch it here. So John the Baptist, he was known for this really strict ascetic lifestyle, which basically means in order for him to come to know the Lord and to have this great relationship with the Lord, it was really better for him to beat himself and make his life as uncomfortable as possible so the Lord was near him. There's a lot of folks who think that life has to be horrible in order for us to be near the Lord. So this is not an uncommon thing, but his disciples, they followed in a similar, very disciplined, very strict behavior, very uh, ascetic life. Who the heck are these out-of-control guys? They seem to have no discipline. They seem to have no structure. They seem to be doing things willy-nilly, and there don't seem to be any boundaries in their lives. And this was their, this was their critique of Jesus and his disciples in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 9. They say, how is it that we and the Pharisees, that's a little dangerous, isn't it? How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast, Jesus? How is that? I mean, fasting was, at that time, a very important piece of their faith. Fasting still today is a very important piece of our faith. It's an important spiritual discipline in which we connect with our Heavenly Father. Now, during the time of Jesus, it was very commonplace that the, the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, what they would do is they would fast two days a week from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and at 6 p.m. they could eat again. And the whole thing was this similar practice of what we do, where whenever we fast, whenever we get hungry, whatever we're fasting for, we're praying to that end. Whenever we get the pains of hunger begin to strike us, we then know that that's our cue to pray. It's our cue to spend time with the Lord and to be reminded of whatever it is that we're fasting for. But they would do this twice a week. Now, what it was seen, though, is that Jesus and his disciples, on these days that were the designated fasting days, they were not fasting. And so John the Baptist's disciples are like, what are you doing? And so their criticism is, we're fasting, and you are not. And so you've got this group of people that are, their, their leader was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. And now, this Savior is here, and now Jesus himself and his followers aren't good enough. Because they're not following the rules. They're not doing all the right things. They have not lived the disciplined life that John the Baptist and his disciples have lived. It's an interesting paradox that is here because in this moment, the disciples of John the Baptist are identifying more with the Pharisees than they are with Jesus. And it's just put everything into flux. Now, 
it's kind of an important piece of the puzzle here because we're going to be going through several different groups of people, several different people who are criticizing Jesus, criticizing uh, the way that Jesus is leading his followers to follow him. And uh, what's important for us to do is we can't vilify them. Uh, we we got to be careful to not make them the enemy in all of this because they are not the enemy. The most important thing for us to do in this is let's focus on Jesus. Let's look and see Jesus' responses. Let's look at how, how Jesus handled this. And then we're going to take our cues from Jesus. Because if truthfully told, we're going to be able to identify with a lot of the people who are criticizing Jesus over the next several weeks. And so we might even be guilty of doing something similar in our lifetime in the 21st century. And we kind of need to work that out. So let's, not, let's be careful to not vilify them or make them the enemy in what we're talking about here. And so here's kind of a, a thing that would be a great, um, a great thing for us to do. So let's, let's think about our culture. And so let's think about something that is culturally acceptable that Jesus might not participate in. Think about it for just a second. What is something that in our culture is culturally acceptable that Jesus might not participate in? Here's the question. Would you criticize Jesus for that? This is how we begin to enter into the story. Would you criticize Jesus for not participating in something that in our culture, even the believing culture, would expect Jesus to participate in, but he might not? Would we find ourselves being critical of Jesus in that moment? How would we respond? And so what we want to do is we just want to look at Jesus. We want to take our time and look at Jesus and his response because it's really going to be pretty amazing. So the first response that Jesus does is he doesn't deny that they're right. He looks at these, the, the John the Baptist disciples, he's like, true, they're not fasting. You're exactly right. We're not fasting, they're not fasting, we're not. This is, so, so Matthew chapter nine, here's how he answers. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Huh? Why are you not fasting? Well, okay, the wedding guest's not born. What? What the heck does that mean? See, this is Jesus' way of saying, isn't we supposed to be having a fiesta? That's what he's saying. He's like, wait a minute, I'm here. The Savior of the world, the one that God sent, his only son to this earth. I am here. Why are we mourning? Why are we in fasting? Why are we looking for something that's actually right here in the flesh. See, in Jewish culture, Jesus is now bringing into a really important piece of this puzzle, the wedding. See, the wedding in Jewish culture was this huge extravaganza. It lasted days upon days. And guess what? During the wedding, a lot of the, the religious rituals were let go by the priests because it was so important for people in the wedding for them to enjoy this moment and not have any religious expectation that would dampen the moment. And so that's what's going on here. So Jesus is like, wait a minute. Why would my disciples be fasting rather than just capturing all of me in this moment? So the bridegroom is here. The wedding feast is here. The celebration is here. But Jesus is undeniably responding to these 
uh, disciples of John saying, wait a minute, the event of a lifetime is right here. It's time to celebrate. It's time to look with joy at what God has done on this earth and what the future holds. He's saying just as when two people get married and it pauses all of the normal routines, including spiritual disciplines, so too are Jesus' disciples doing the same. And in so doing, why don't you be a part of this too? What Jesus is saying is, there's a new way. I have come to do something new. Complete the law and usher in a new way of living here on this earth. So Jesus' response really kind of helps us in our own mind to say it in other words this way. When people are around Jesus, they will want to celebrate. Gosh, doesn't that make you kind of go, wait a minute, is that what I do? When I get to get up in the morning, I get to open up my Bible, I get to encounter Jesus, do I want to celebrate at that moment? I get to gather together on a Sunday evening, the band is just playing, and we're singing these songs, and he's the way maker, and he's all like, is it a time to celebrate? Is that what happens in me? Or is it something different? Does Jesus evoke this response in me? If not, why? What is it? The more and more I say yes to Jesus, the more and more these things happen, but yet, there's cause to celebrate. There's this beautiful reality and when people are around Jesus, they will want to celebrate. I mean, do you envision Jesus as the life of the party? Because he was. I mean, this dude shows up at these parties and everybody that's anybody except for the religious buddy-duddies all wanted to be with Jesus. They all wanted to hang out with him. They loved spending time with Jesus. So Jesus as the life of the party, is that the way you view Jesus? Or maybe another way of saying it is, is, is following Jesus this life of continual joy, like a weekend festival, except for with Jesus, it lasts for a lifetime? And in fact, all eternity? See, this is Jesus. And this is the new way. It doesn't mean things aren't hard. It doesn't mean that things don't, we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that there's not the reality of hardness and we do hard things on this earth. The question is, where is joy in the middle of all of that? We're just doing hard things. We're just going to kind of be these people. But man, we're going to keep saying yes to the hard thing. Yes, yes, yes. Life sucks. Yes, yes, yes. I don't like what I'm doing, but I know it's right. Yes, yes, yes. And I die. Well, that sounds like fun. But sometimes Christ followers are guilty of this. I am standing before you today as one who is prone to view my faith through that lens. That's what it means to be a slave to righteousness. That's what it means to die to yourself. That's what it means to crawl up on the cross, crucify yourself, and follow after Jesus. Yes to the hard thing. Yes to the hard thing. If it's in front of me and it's hard, I'm probably supposed to say yes to it. Does it sound familiar to anybody else in this room? But what we're learning here in this, Jesus is saying, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to be having a fiesta? The Savior of the world has come. And he's come to change life for all eternity. And joy is different. Life is different. There is a new way of doing these things. 
See, the disciples of John, they saw it. The Pharisees, they saw it. And you know what their response was to that? They were confused. How in the world is it possible for Jesus to be the one who came to this earth purposely to die so that other people can live and him be the life of the party? How does that work? How does it work? I mean, they're looking at that going, that makes no sense at all. But it's Jesus' way. And it is the way to relationship with God. Jesus goes on to compare the life of following Jesus to putting new wine in new wineskins. Now, I am not a wine connoisseur. I know there are some of you in this room that you, you know so much more about wine. It's not even or beer or whatever it is. You know so much more than I do. But I'm going to give this a go for just a second, all right? You correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. But here's the way this kind of went, all right? So let me, let me read this, and then I'm going to give a little explanation. So Matthew 9, verse 17, Jesus tells this illustration. This is how Jesus answers questions. He tells stories or asks another question. He says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. And so here's what Jesus is basically saying. Is he's saying, hang on, we're supposed to be having a fiesta here, right? And then he responds and he says, will you be flexible? So Jesus' response is, yes, you have the way. Yes, you know how you've been living. Yes, you've done an amazing job keeping all the rules, being very disciplined and everything. And then Jesus says, can you be flexible for just a second? Because here's what I mean by this. And so Jesus goes in and he says, all right. So in our day, wine comes in a bottle or a box, whichever one you choose, right? All right, bottle or box. Anyway, so you got that. So, so, um, so, so you got But in Jesus' day, it came in these, like, pouches. And what you would do is you would take these uh, new pouches because they were flexible, pliable, and they'd pour the wine in there, they would seal it, and as the fermentation process is taking place, all the, all the whatever does the whatever that makes the bubbles and makes the wine skin develop gases, or, or uh, makes the wine develop gases, it then stretches the wine skin, and then the wine skin, believe it or not, becomes rigid. Because it's stretched, and then as it becomes rigid, then you kind of pour your wine out of the bottle, right? And it's a bag. Well, what happens if you get to the end of that? There's a hole in the bottle, right? You know, you pour it all out and it's gone. What happens if you put new wine in that rigid wineskin? It begins to expand more. And the old wineskin can't handle the pressure, can't handle the newness, can't handle the new way that it's being asked to stretch. And it eventually busts and breaks. And so in other words, you got to use new wineskins with new wine. Otherwise, it's going to mess everything up. But when you use new wineskins with new wine, then everything works out just fine. And so this is that idea of Jesus saying, y'all, there's a new thing going. There's a new way going. And you guys have done a great job of putting all of the things in place to prepare the way for me to show up on this earth, to prepare the way for these bunch of ragtag dudes to show up, but be careful to not stay rigid. Be careful to not let your self-discipline become your idol. Because if you do that, the new way is going to stretch you. And if your rules are more important than your Jesus, the Jesus is going to burst you. 
You won't be able to take it. It's too much for you to handle. And so Jesus is saying, if you will be more flexible, if you will receive this new way, life changes forever. Not only for me and my gang, but for you as well. And guess what? Even those you're identifying more than me right now, the Pharisees can change their life forever too. You just can't, you just can't let your rules, your, your rigidity become the most important thing because that's not what Jesus' way is. It's important to maintain flexibility. So new wine is put in a new wineskin because it's more flexible. And so here's what Jesus is saying to John, well, to John's disciples. He says, what you're seeing is new wine. So would you have the flexibility to accept these followers of mine and their unorthodox practices? This is a tall order because these guys have been doing everything they believe to be right. Everything they believe to be by the book. They've been very serious about it for their relationship with their heavenly father. And now Jesus is saying, hey, easy. Let's, let's soften up a little bit here. Let's get a little bit more pliable. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, um, some of you will remember the 1990s. I know some of you are like, well, I have no idea about the 90s, so whatever. Um, here's what happened in the 90s in the church. Um, in the 90s in the church, there were these things called worship wars. Terrible phrase. Basically what it meant was there was a younger generation coming into the church, and the younger generation, albeit they loved hymns, were ready for some more energetic music, all right? Well, you can imagine how this played. The rigid of the church, as this new music came in, all of a sudden, this is rock showing up in the church. This is, you know, Satan's music. This is all that stuff, right? Okay, showing up and, and not willing to flex, not willing to receive this younger generation coming in in, a, in an attempt to worship in a more enhanced way. And so it created havoc in the church. Well, we know that what happened over time is that, that it actually enhanced worship because now we have a broader spectrum of worship. We have hymns, we have these contemporary music, much of which are straight from scripture that we're singing just words of the Lord back to the Lord. And so it's created this really beautiful expression of the Lord. We get to experience the old hymns and the new contemporary music and it's become a really beautiful thing. I remember a conversation during that time of life, because of course during that time, I was a part of the younger generation that just couldn't understand why the older generation couldn't be more flexible. And then I looked at my friend, Clint Neighbors, and we had a conversation. And I said, what do you think is going to be the thing that the younger generation brings to the church that as we are the older generation, we struggle being flexible with? But if we'll be flexible, it can help bring a more complete picture to the church. What do you think that's going to be? We had no, we, we had no idea. You know, we're just kind of having a conversation. You know, but that's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Because what is Jesus going to ask you to flex with that if you hold on to your rigidity, it's going to stretch you in ways that you may choose to quit Jesus altogether. 
You may choose to quit the church altogether if we're not careful. If we hold on to the rules and regulations, then we have a problem. If the rules and regulations are something Jesus himself would probably take a pass on. So we have to look at these things. And so in our day today, it's worth, worth asking this question of the, of the teaching tonight, of this story. Which group of people do we most identify with? Do we identify with, with John and his disciples? And we look at this and we kind of go, yeah, there's all of these things. We just have to read the word of God and we see the playbook and we understand how life is supposed to work. And, and there's this younger generation or there's this new generation that's coming in. And it just seems like it just, it just there's no rules, there's no regulations, and there's nothing. And it's just anything goes. Or maybe you find yourself identifying with Jesus and his disciples and you're like, yeah, we really need the church to flex or we're gonna lose a generation altogether. We need the church to see Jesus for who Jesus is and to accept some of Jesus' unorthodox practices and, and in order for us to be able to, to connect with the culture in which we live today, otherwise we're gonna lose a generation. And you're scared about that. I remember being scared. If we don't change our music, we're going to lose my generation. I remember thinking that. And I was, I don't think that would have happened if you really look at it and kind of come full circle. I mean, church is God's church. And the Lord can, can navigate that however God wants to navigate it. Save us in all of our inadequacies and in, um, injustices. But I remember that feeling. Where are we today who in the Jesus story do we find ourselves identifying with the most? And now I'm going to say a phrase, and it's an important one for us to kind of view what we're talking about through, and here it is. A life with Jesus is a life with joy filled with an ever-increasing freedom. Does that define, do you find yourself experiencing an ever-increasing freedom, or do you find yourself creating rules upon rules. How does life play out? Do you find yourself flexing or do you find rigidity beginning to set in? I think we can be guilty of both in certain instances, but I think it's important for us to look at this. This is a life with Jesus. It doesn't mean that things aren't hard. Okay, please don't hear me say this is not meaning life is easy. A life with Jesus is a life of ease. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is a life with Jesus is a life of joy. That we become more and more free no matter what the enemy throws our way. Because we're not set up to be rigid this way. We can flex. We can move and shape however the enemy does. Because yeah, y'all, we fast and we pray. Just like John and his disciples were talking about. Absolutely, we know the more we say yes to Jesus, the larger the target gets on our back. We absolutely know these things. We know that the enemy wants to destroy you and me. We know these things. We understand these things. We experience it. But you know what we really need to make sure with this is the end. And there is joy when we face these trials. Because we know this earth is not our home. We know this isn't the end. We know this isn't as good as it gets. We know that there is something far better in our future. And it doesn't matter what somebody does or does not do to us, some injustice that happens to us or not, we get the ability to change the narrative in that. And it's a beautiful thing because for light, even the smallest of light pierces the darkness. 
And so we get the beautiful privilege of living as children of God, being shown the way by Jesus to this life that is a life that is full, a life that is filled with joy in and through the struggle because we see God come through time and time again and all of a sudden we find that we're considering trials pure joy. And now there's this completeness that's showing up. There's a maturity that's showing up. There's something that we're not familiar with and there's a certainty, there's a steady foundation and there's a no matter what happens to me, I don't get blown back and forth by the waves and that produces joy because the Spirit is who's guiding our lives in these moments. Yes, we fast and pray. Yes, we know the target is increasing. And yes, we know we have been set free. And get this, we have been set free from the life of religious rules and regulations in order to create. Isn't that beautiful? Please don't let the creator in you be squashed. God is the creator, and God wove into each of you and each of, each of me, that was weird. <laughs> each of you and each of the different personalities in my head, he wove in creator. He wove in this ability to create, and we have to be so careful to not let all this structure, this religious structure squash creativity because the more time we spend with Jesus the more we become like Jesus the more grace we're given the more grace we get the more forgiveness we're receiving the more forgiveness we're able to give the more innocent verdicts that we are given in our lives the more not guilties we're able to give to other people this is how this works and it's a really beautiful, beautiful reality because this is cause for celebration, isn't it? This is cause for celebration because we get to spend a lifetime with Jesus. And Jesus' way is new. Yes, there are parameters, but there are huge freedom within the parameters. We've got to capture this as a church because life with Jesus is intended to be a life full of joy. The question is, is that your story? If it's not, let's spend some time. Father, we love you and we trust you. And here we are this evening, and Lord, this is one of those times where we get to see Jesus respond. And Jesus responds in a way that, man, sometimes we look and go, I don't understand why you aren't fasting. I don't understand why you aren't playing by the rules, Jesus. And Lord, at the same time, we see this and we understand, thank you for the new way. Because, Lord, we are so guilty of creating a new system because that's what provides security for us. Father, will you help us to not find our security in some system that we create, thinking that this is your system. But, Father, may we live in flux. May we live with flexibility. And as Jesus is alive and well in us, Lord, may he be setting us free May he be showing us the way. And Lord, may your spirit be the one that's prompting. Lord, our moral compass is not the rule book. Our moral compass is Jesus. Our moral compass is you. And so Lord, will you help us? Because Lord, as we seek, we'll find you. 
And Lord, if we want to know the way to go, you'll show us the way. Father, will you help us to not lean on our own understanding of your word? Will you help us not lean on our own understanding of your way? But Lord, may you help us to trust you, to deeply know you and trust. You will show the way. Lord, there's a lot of folks who are going to criticize what we choose to do or not do. Lord, may our life be defined by an ever-increasing freedom that we keep finding in you. So, Lord, we need you. Will you show us the way and will you shine the light where we should go? We trust you and we pray this through the name of Jesus. Amen.